Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done over 500 of them by now, and if you've been watching regularly, you've heard that number increasing over the years. I can remember when I was saying I've done over 200 of them, and uh, I intend to keep on doing them. So if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, go to batgap.com and look under the past interviews menu. You can also be notified of future ones by signing up for a little email notification thing there. This also exists as an audio podcast for those who like to listen to things while they commute and stuff. And the whole thing is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. There's no advertising or anything other than those annoying little ads you see on YouTube, which don't really generate much revenue. And we're a nonprofit. So if you feel like supporting it to any extent, some people like set up a little $5 a month thing or whatever, whatever is comfortable or nothing at all, whatever you prefer. But if you, if you appreciate it and would like to support it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the site. So my guest today is Kate Augustine, PhD. Uh, Kate is a clinical psychologist practicing in the San Francisco Bay Area. She received her education from Princeton University and the University of California, Berkeley, and has worked in a variety of settings over the past 25 years as a mental health practitioner, outpatient psychiatry, community mental health clinics, VA hospital, college counseling services, and currently in private practice. Kate integrates the science of positive psychology into her psychotherapy, teaching, and consultation, and leads classes and trainings for students, patients, and healthcare professionals. So, based on that introduction, you might be thinking that this is going to be a a conversation about positive psychology or, you know, self-improvement or that kind of thing. But Kate has actually written a book called the No Self-Help Book, as opposed to the Self-Help Book. (laughs) 40 Reasons to Get Over Yourself and Find Peace of Mind. And uh, that's what we're going to be talking about. So I think that's interesting. A number of people I've interviewed have said that there is ultimately no self or that they've lost any sense of a personal self. And I always argue that you couldn't utterly lose any sense of a personal self. You wouldn't be able to function. Uh, But anyway, we'll get into all that stuff. So welcome, Kate. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Good to have you. So before we actually get into the content of your book, tell us a little bit about yourself. We just heard about your education, which is a Uh very good one. How about your spiritual education? When did you first get interested in spirituality and what have been some of the main influences in that regard? I first got interested in spirituality about 25 years ago when I started my graduate studies at Berkeley. And I just, through my own interest, started attending the local Zen center and you know, sampling a number of different teachers that circulated through the Bay Area, different meditation retreats and sanghas. And I remember one pivotal class that was offered by the faculty, which was the clinical applications of Eastern thought. It was offered by Professor Eleanor Roche. And that was kind of my first introduction to this overlap between psychology and Eastern wisdom traditions. So since then, I've been... um, just making the most about being in the Bay Area where so many wonderful teachers come through and I'm able to participate in in all sorts of venues. Yeah, I would say that other Uh than Rishikesh, it's probably the world's biggest hotbed of spiritual teachers. And Rishikesh, of course, is heavy on the Hinduism. So in in the Bay Uh Area, you have this eclectic mix of all kinds of things. Ah, (laughs) great. That's great. 
That's mm-hmm. why the Science and Non-Duality Conference is held out there. It's already half the people who come to it are already yes. there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So something in what you just said, you know, the clinical applications of Eastern thought, I think the name of that course was, obviously yeah. you, you probably feel that Eastern thought, which we could define a little bit if necessary, has clinical applications. It has, in other words, it can be beneficial for people's mental health, right? If applied properly. Oh, absolutely. Properly. Right. And these days, you know, there have been many applications for stress management and pain regulation. You know, mindfulness practice has been integrated into behavioral medicine. But, it, it, you know, it can be a little bit of a watered down version. It doesn't necessarily carry over some of the, you know, the theology, as it were, behind it. Right. It's just used as a way of helping people, you know, adjust better or feel better. Yeah. And obviously, people do yoga classes in the local YMCA and, and all that yes. without the theology. In fact, the, my friend Phil Goldberg wrote this great book called American Veda. Have you ever heard of that book? No, no. Yeah, he's been on Batcap. But it's a, a book about the whole influx of Eastern wisdom since the time of the founding fathers, really, that began to trickle in in, in small amounts. And then the, there were the transcendentalists, and then, then there was Vivekananda, and then Yogananda. And he just traces a whole history of of the sort of Vedic influence uh, on, on the West and all the impacts that's had. It's an interesting book. Yes. Yeah. Well, and it's you know, really uh, blossomed exponentially. Yeah, it continues yeah. to do so. Um, yes. Okay, so then you obviously say like 25 years ago, you started getting involved in this stuff and going to Zen, the Zen Center and Sanghas and Satsangs and so on. So what influence has it had on you? Oh, personally? Yeah. Well, there have been, you know, a couple different influences there. One has been through the intellectual study, you know, reading as many books as I can get my hands on, but that has been only one part of the immersion. You know, the other part has been just the visceral sense of these teachings and uh, at times being graced with a deeper understanding. And we might also call that a deeper experience, right? Because I'm sure it's not just an intellectual understanding. Right. In fact, it it really has nothing to do with thought process at all. And so that, for me, has profoundly changed my life. It's, it's really altered my entire understanding of who I am. And I believe it's made a difference in how I am as a healer, you know, as a psychotherapist. Uh, and it's certainly what's led me to write a book like this. Yeah. It's uh, truly, I would never have envisioned writing a book on not having a self like that. <laughs> I come from a very conventional background. This this is not something that I was, um, you know, my life kind of ambition. Do you have uh, some kind of regular practice that you've settled into, some daily routine of spiritual practice? I had a while back, but truly writing this book became my spiritual practice. You know, there was a certain uh, ritual of prayer that I needed to, to sort of use as an entry point to write parts of the book. And so that was my focus for a while. Okay. And you mentioned mm-hmm. Adyashanti and Rupert Spira and a few other teachers. Um, yes. Can- Candace or Denver. Denver, and so right. And they've had significant influences on you? Yes, yes. I've gone to many retreats and, um, you know, I just find their teachings accessible. I mean, you know, each person has their own flavor and, um, you know, my mind loves to kind of gnaw on Rupert Spira, what he has to say, you know, as, you know, the, the, there's a, a deeper sort of embodiment of his teachings. 
Adi Shanti, I find very accessible just in terms of kind of day-to-day life and, and how to uh, apply his words. Candace is, you know, just everyone has their own unique personality as the, the vehicle through which they deliver their teachings. And so I've really enjoyed seeing, you know, how this can come across in so many different ways. If you hadn't heard these people speaking and you hadn't read all the spiritual books, but had done the spiritual practice that you've done, would it have occurred to you that ultimately there is no self, or at least that the self is certainly not what we take it to be? If I hadn't read all these books. Yeah, in other words, to what extent did you glom onto that idea from things you heard and read as opposed to what Mm. you yourself were actually experiencing? There were several actual moments of grace in which my personal self kind of left the room. Yes, dissipated. (laughs) And those experiences are what has given the I don't know, the, the meat to this, right? My, I mean, my mind can sort of understand and really can articulate this, but those experiences are what have changed everything. Yeah. Did they leave a lasting flavor or was it like a glimpse and then you lost it? Both. I mean, there was a glimpse and then, you know, the sort of localized sense of self came back in. But sometimes you can have like one penetrating experience of truth and that can shift everything. And I feel like my sort of personal experience with this is what informed this particular kind of book, because I I really do refer to the selfing process, you know, to being able to, you know, identify with self-referential thought, you know, that's kind of the default, and then being able to pause and step back and not identify with it. So that really has been my process. Paul Hederman is fond of using the word selfing. Have you ever listened to him? Uh, no, I know I haven't. Some people have mentioned him recently, so I, I, yeah. I look forward to looking him up. Well, my sense in reading your book um, uh-huh. is that you're not advocating becoming utterly devoid of a sense of personal identity, and I doubt whether that's possible anyway. But it seems more I, that you're encouraging people to stop believing false mental stories about themselves. Is, is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. You know, even though the, the title of the book is, you know, get over yourself, you know, kind of in a, a clever or dismissive way, it's, it, this is really about uh, just informed consent. You know, when, when these narratives come to mind, what do you choose to identify with? You know, I really wanted to write this book as kind of a, an accessible entry level kind of pop non-duality book, you know, for people who aren't necessarily thinking about spirituality or who may not even be psychologically minded, you know, just something that people can relate to based on, you know, their um, preoccupation with their own thoughts. Yeah. And you go through a whole lot of points of, you know, how life goes if you are preoccupied, and then a whole lot of points about how life could go if you weren't. So I think we're going to go through some of those uh, as we go along (laughs) in this conversation. It seems to me one other key point about your book that I took away from it is that identification is the key factor in how seriously we take these thoughts and mental stories we tell ourselves. And, you know, of course, that's that famous analogy of the movie screen, right, where the movie is playing on the screen and it overshadows the screen to the extent that you don't even know there's a screen there. You just get completely caught up in the movie. Oh, exactly. you know, there's monsters coming at me or whatever. 
Whereas mm-hmm. if the screen could somehow get brighter, then you would see the screen and the movie. And perhaps the screen could get so bright that the movie would just be a sort of a faint remains of images and the screen would be predominant. Right. It's where, where do you want to rest the majority of your attention or where your, your sense of presence or center of gravity resides. And, you know, most people don't even know that there's, there's a choice in this. You know, there's, um, you know, some sort of thought and then sense of oneself is just instantaneously merged with that. And so this book is really trying to create a little bit of a, a wedge so that the thought or emotion, you know, whatever the, the passing phenomena of mind is, that can come up. And then there's a, you know, there's a you there that's able to witness that and uh, make a choice, you know, how much do you want to go with the storyline or maybe begin turning and, and inquiring, well, what is this part, right? Th- this is the part that gets left out by psychology. You know, wh- what is that witnessing presence? Um, you know, we're really interested in, you know, the, the, the types of thoughts and the types of behaviors and how to make them more adaptive or more functional. But, uh, you know, it, it only goes so far in terms of health. Yeah. Plato's allegory of the cave comes to mind, too, you know, where the people are chained in the cave and there's a fire behind them casting shadows on a wall. And, and they, uh-huh. they think that that's the only reality. Um, and yeah. similar to the movie screen analogy, but it's, it's yes. to throw that in there. Um, and there's a whole other world that they're completely unaware of because they've right. always been chained staring at that wall. <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, our culture is very much about the, the projection and the movie. And it's so entertaining, gripping. Right. But it's, you know, it's stressful and it's, uh, you know, it's a fraction of what our, um, you know, sort of wholeness is. And I wouldn't say that it's just our culture either, because I think mm-hmm. it's worldwide. It's universal. Everybody mm-hmm. gets, there's the same mechanics in which this, uh, the sensory input overshadows the self, the, the true self, the inner the, the self with the capital S. And, you know, we take ourselves to be or we identify with the sensory input as opposed to our, our essential nature. Yes, yes. And, you know, it, it seems like these, um, you know, earth suits, if you will, are, are kind of hardwired in that way, you know, to, to take it all as you know, at face value, um, kind of the human condition. Yeah. One little doubt I had as I read your book is Uh that it's good what you said about creating a wedge that could sort of drive a little wedge between people's concept of themselves and what they actually are or aren't. I mean, I think that's a start. Having the intellectual glimpse or understanding that there's more to life than meets the eye and there's deeper aspect to what we are than we think ourselves to be and all that stuff. But personally, I would Uh advocate for some kind of regular practice. Uh I'm big on practice that Uh would actually make that a living reality um, and prevent it from just being a conceptual one, which conceptual ones are very, very tenuous. Right. Right. Well, and and certainly meditation and every group therapy that I conducted at uh, the the department of psychiatry where I worked, we all began with a a meditation process. And, um, you know, and even though it was applied for the benefit of uh, relaxation or just, you know, a moment of mindfulness, it's, it's really about cultivating some uh, identification with that uh, abiding presence, you know, sort of the field of awareness and helping people come to know themselves as that and not so much the content of their thinking. You know, that's you know, really what the intention is, even if the, the languaging around that is different in a department of psychiatry. Yeah. 
And of course, you know, people say, and I think you even say in your book, well, we are that, so it shouldn't be that difficult to relax into that or tune into that. But that can be easier said than done, you know, if one's life oh. is like in, intense and it's really coming at you and you've got bills and problems and kids and you're exhausted and, and everything else. It's just a sort of a pipe dream to, to say, well, you are this deeper reality. Right. It, it requires, like you say, the practice and prompts and, you know, some kind of technology Something to help people. Yeah. yeah to quiet down the noise, or at least not to quiet down the noise, because really we can't control our thoughts so much, but, you know, to not invest as much credibility in them. But the noise can be quieted down. You know, the Yoga mm-hmm. Sutras, the, the second verse, yoga is the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind, it says. And mm-hmm. then the seer rests in the self. That's the second and third verses of it. So there are practices which will enable the mind to settle down, just the way an agitated ocean can settle down if the wind stops blowing. And then, you know, just like the ocean, the sun can be reflected clearly once the agitation stops. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then the image on the front of the book is a person sort of lying on the surface of the o- ocean. Although I, I have to say the rendering of that, the person looks a little uh, rigor mortis there. But essentially, it's supposed to be a calm in the midst of the, the sea. Right. <laughs> I just held it up there. Yeah. We're saying these things because it's good for people to understand that this is possible, I think. Your book tells them that life could be so much better if that's the way one experienced it. And I'm, I'm just throwing in this stuff here about practice and ex- in order to m- make sure that you're experiencing it and not just conceptualizing it. Exactly. I think this book is really a very a first step in just in terms of introducing the notion that there's something other than the commentary. And then if people want to dig deeper, plenty of great resources for that. Yeah. I have this friend named David Buckland who's been on Batgap a couple of times. And uh, I have a lot of respect for his knowledge about things. I read his blog or listen to his podcast regularly. And I ran uh-huh. this by him, told him that you know, I was going to be interviewing you. And he kind of looked at video, uh, looked at your website. And he sent me something that was rather useful. I thought we could run through it a little bit. In the Vedic understanding, they have this self-concept broken down into various levels. And the one that people are most familiar with is uh, it's called asmita. And it means the selfish me that possesses things as mine. You know, my mm. body, my emotions, my thoughts, my possessions. And this is a sort of identified ego driven by needs and desires. Um, yes. And actually, because of when it typically develops, we might call it the two-year-old self. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. Yes, and there needs to be that level of ego development. There needs to be some kind of initially coherent, stable sort of sense of self, you know, in a conventional psychological sense, in order to be able to sort of disidentify and, and perhaps transcend that. So m- much of my work as a psychologist is really addressing healthy ego development and I don't pathologize that at all. I mean, you know, for people to know what their, to identify what their preferences are, to be able to advocate them, be able to sort of have a sense of personal rights, that's just healthy functioning. That's not where the story ends. No, but you make it clear in your book that you're not going to lose all that stuff if, if you shift from the asvita level, you know, the, the possessive identified attached sense of self to a much more universal one. You're, you're still going to have those preferences and judgments and whatnot as appropriate. Exactly. I mean, you know, those things have been so overlearned. You know, this this sense of self really isn't going anywhere. You know, if you don't want it to, it, it will reconfigure itself within a split second. So 
<laughs> and if it totally evaporated, I don't know how a person would function. I mean, how do you know where to put the, the food in the mouth and, you know, how to walk well, through the door? I mean, there has right. to be some sense of take your hand off the stove if it's if it's hot. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, I, I really do feel we are, you know, given this sort of human form for the purpose of experiencing that play of separateness and unity. And so, you know, that unique manifestation needs to be kind of part of the curriculum here. Yeah. It's just that we could say that the self is multidimensional and most people are stuck in the most manifest narrow dimension of it. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's one way of putting it. Well, right. You know, just in terms of um, survival, evolutionarily, you know, looking at what do I have versus what does the other person have? You know, just basically taking care of, of needs and making sure that there's security and then there's contentment. I mean, you know, and these are important needs. But again, it's it's not the whole of, of what people bring to the table. Yeah. yeah. So um, the next uh, level that David outlined is, uh-huh. uh, is called ahamkara. And it's defined as the individuating principle. And this is usually translated as ego. And it results from the intellect recognizing this <clears throat> as different from other. More subtle, it's more subtle than, than a smita, the possessive self, and it's the sense of an individual self. And this begins with early separation from the mother and gradually develops into the teens when the intellect becomes more prominent. Ahamkara mm. continues post awakening, but is no longer seen as who I am. Ah, you know, you can, in psychological terms, you might think of that also as theory of mind is developing, right? The capacity to sort of differentiate one's own perspective from that of others. Um, you know, which comes online with the development of language. You know, that this self-referential capacity is very much language-driven. And so, um, you know, and then, and then in the way that that um, evolves over time, I mean, part of that depends on the environment, not only sort of the, you know, the hardwired conditioning, but the environment as well. Okay. We're going to get into your book in detail in a second. But I just... Mm-hmm. One more level here. Uh-huh. Uh, the next one is called aham, and it's an even more subtle sense of I am, of being. Uh-huh. Um, it, can, it can arise only when the mind is quiet and a true sense of self can shine through. It's beyond all the mind associations that we've just mentioned, asmita and ahamkara. The sense of I am fades um, as one shifts into Brahman consciousness. We don't feel like we cease to be, only that what we are is inclusive of something even greater than being. Mm. Um, so, so we're kind of like shifting here, going from I-ness to amness to isness. Yes. Ah. Yeah, and you can just feel the, I don't know, just the spaciousness of that as you describe it, right? There's something that's just so liberating in that progression. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in a sentence, we could say the more f- fundamental mm-hmm. um, we become the more universal we become. In other words, the, 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 at the deeper level at which we appreciate what we truly are, the more universal we find that to be. Mm. Yeah, so that there really isn't um, separation or, or difference. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, yeah. people have, have often used the wave and ocean analogy. The waves might think they're separate, but if they kind of look to their roots, they find, oh, we're all just part of the same world is the same ocean, you know? Exactly, exactly. And I bring that metaphor in towards the end of the book in terms of, um, you know, first of all, this choice of do people even want to let go of of the wave identification because it's, you know, it's sort of where the action is at. It's sort of what's reflected back culturally or perhaps, you know, sort of universally. And 
you know, from the ego's point of view or the self's point of view, it, it may seem rather dull, you know, to be sort of in the depths of this kind of stillness or, you know, the fear of losing one's individuality, which isn't really what has to go with it. But, um, you know, I, I think it's just seen as kind of foreign and potentially threatening. Yeah. Thought that comes to mind as you say that is um, the senses seem to have the natural function of drawing the attention outwards. That's what they're designed to do, right? Mm-hmm. So we're perceiving all these things outwards, outwardly. And they get habituated to doing that such that we, we kind of atrophy in our ability to appreciate the inward because mm-hmm. you know, we're always outer directed. And so, you know, the meditation of some sort um, should be designed to allow the senses to take a 180 degree turn and proceed inwardly. But yes. If, but if we're not accustomed to doing that, then like you just said, it might seem dull or we might feel like there's nothing to find there. Or, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we're, used, to, <clears throat> we're used to getting our fulfillment from outer, outer stimulation. And right. So what could there possibly, what, I mean, in fact, when I started meditating, people would say it, it looked weird. You know, I'm sitting, yeah. there, sitting there with my eyes closed for half an hour. You know, what the heck are you doing? Right, <laughs> right. Like how disconnected time. is that, right? <laughs> Except it's really the, the deepest level of connection. And, and I think that's why this is really in a whole paradigm shift, right? It's, it's a revolution in, in the literal sense of we're revolving away from focusing out there, revolving towards within, and then to see there really isn't uh, a division. But it's, um, you know, it's a, an incredibly different orientation to the world. It is. But as you know, and as most listeners will know, that all the ancient traditions say that there's a tremendous prize to be found if we, if we can take the attention inwards. It's a great reservoir of, of intelligence mm. and happiness and all kinds of wonderful qualities that we can tap into. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, I try to use a metaphor um, in the book of you know, imagining sort of a, a stock room full of these barrels of every capacity you can think of, you know, the peace and the kindness and the this and the that, and, you know, and barrels full of animosity or conflict, you know, but it, it's all accessible, you know, when you don't identify with the patterning, the narrative of the self, you can sort of step back and, and you know, sort of see what you, what barrel you would like to, you know, sort of stock yourself from. But, but, you know, the supplies aren't going anywhere and whatever you draw from, it, it's not going to be the only defining of you. You know, I can pull from this experience in this moment of anxiety and in this next moment, you know, pull from some other, um, you know, kind of collective expression. Uh, and, you know, there's no, there's no conflict. It's an abundance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When I read that portion in your book, I did, mm-hmm. it, it triggered a question I wanted to ask you. Mm-hmm. And that is that, um, you know, in the metaphor, in the analogy, you're, you're talking about barrels of abundance and wonderful things, but also barrels, like you just said, of animosity and conflict and stuff. And I would argue that the animosity and the conflict and the negative stuff is not, are not characteristic of our essential nature. They are the sort of crud that has developed over time through not being in touch with our essential nature and that... Um, the whole process of spiritual evolution involves cleaning out that crud so that the essential nature can shine through um, and not be occluded or obscured by, yes. by the deeper impressions. But it's not mm-hmm. like if we realize our essential nature in its fullness, we're going to you know, sometimes be expressing tremendous compassion and other times uh, tremendous you know, negativity because, you know, because there's a negativity barrel deep within. 
<laughs> well, no, I appreciate that clarification, and I and I would agree with you. And so I think you know the, the perhaps what that was drawing attention to was the selfing process. You know, when people really step back and, and see that they have choice in terms of what they identify with. You know, what kind of thought or kind of emotion comes through. Those are the ver- the, the different barrels. But when we step back and identify with who is it that's making the choice, that is a very clean field of awareness that doesn't have all of these negative qualities. Yeah. And in a few minutes, we're going to get into the nitty gritty of your book a little bit more. And there's a whole section where you you sort of speak from the perspective of the no self. Right. Or of the higher self or pure consciousness or whatever we want to call mm-hmm. it, and, and and give specific examples of how life would, could flow if that was our primary orientation. So yes. we'll get into that in just a minute. Right. Um, just one final thing I wanted to read from David's levels was that deeper than the aham or the I am is something that carries on whatever the stage, and, and this is called jiva, uh, similar to how we use soul in the West. And this is sort of the point value of consciousness residing in the heart, the life spark that enters at birth and begins the body breathing and leaves at death. It's where the life force Shakti enters and becomes the pranas or the chi. Interesting to throw that in. Yes, yes, because I know the word soul has been used in many different ways. All right, well, thank you. The final point from David here, and then I'll... I'll be done with that. He just said when he first woke up, it felt like an ego death. There was a sense for a while of, mm. I have ceased to exist. But after a while, he realized it was just um, the death of identification with the ego, not a death of the ego itself. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a functioning. You know, the ego is a functioning. It's not an entity. So there's, there's, no, yeah, there's nothing that's actually dying. It's just, you know, there's a certain kind of, operating system that comes online and then we can sort of you know sort of layer on top of it all of this self-referential thought that gives it the sense of being some sort of enduring entity mm-hmm. that we have to try to get rid of but that that whole thing <laughs> is a myth yeah it's, it's such an illusion it's like a faculty we could say yes it's a faculty right it's yeah like like our other faculties that we have that enable us to function as living beings yeah, it's a capacity towards something, and and it's uh, you know helpful. I mean, it's you know it's adaptive in certain ways, certain parameters, but it's it's gone a little, uh, you know, taken over here. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good. Switching to your book, the whole part one is a section that you call selfhoods. There's all sorts of little titles like the imposter self, the self that slices and dices, the self freezes and the, and so on the dictator self so we won't go through every single one of them we, we wouldn't have time but perhaps you could pick out some of the ones that you might most like to talk about it's not going to be anything people have never heard before but because we've all uh-huh. functioned this way but sure. it'd be interesting to contrast that way of functioning with the nicer way of functioning that we're going to talk about next <laughs> all right well you know one of my favorites is the uh, the self-seeks esteem I kind of use the metaphor of um, a black hole and, you know, this process of having to sort of build our self-esteem and and try to prove our worth and have enough accomplishments or enough accolades. It's, you know, it's kind of like a black hole to the extent that you keep achieving. It pulls in that much more of a a need to keep proving. So in other words, self-esteem is, you know, it's elusive. There, there's no self-esteem kind of organ or entity within us. It's, it's the same as the self, in fact. 
you know, we can engage in a process of trying to feel good about ourselves. But the languaging around this, like we have to cultivate enough self-esteem, it really leads to a lot of problems. I mean, I've had a lot of clients get stuck with this, like, oh, you know, I can't pursue this goal or that until I have an adequate level of self-esteem. And, you know, and it's a way of relating to oneself. It's not a thing that you have in hand. Um, very much like the self is the self again a functioning. It's an emergence. It's a it's a response to environment. It's it's not something that you need to reify and then keep referring back to, which kind of keeps us stuck in the past and and prevents us from having kind of a fresh openness to you know what emerges in each moment. So you know so there are a lot of implications for just how psychotherapy is done or, or psychology around this. These days, research has really looked into some of the harms associated with this endless pursuit of self-esteem. You know, it really sets people up for this, I don't know, just self-help project that never ends. You know, and the research shows that actually trying to tap into self-compassion, that is more helpful than trying to cultivate self-esteem because you're not basing a sense of presence or worth on some accomplishment. It's, you know, with compassion, it's, it's part of your, you know, just sort of what's given with your humanity, kind of a warmth and an empathy and an understanding that arises just in the very nature of who and what you are, as opposed to self-esteem, which is you're trying to pull in this prize and, and that's giving you permission to then live as you would like to live. It's, it's a holding pattern. Yeah. I don't think you're saying that one shouldn't aspire to do things and accomplish great things and so on, but that if you if that's where you derive your sense of self or self-worth, then you're going to be on very shaky ground, jumping out of skyscrapers if the stock market crashes or something. Well, exactly, right? It's it's just an invitation to to focus on the process. You know, whatever it is you're trying to to achieve, like how does it feel to be um, participating in, in the process of it, the, the spirit, the uh, participation, rather than, you know, some final end result or outcome that you can kind of have as a trophy, which then proves something about yourself. It's, you know, it's, it's really unnecessary. When I think of self-esteem, I think of the way I was in high school, you know, <laughs> where I was very much lacking in that quality. And um, just feeling, oh, I'm not cool, I'm not popular, uh, yada, yada. Uh, that whole high school mentality that is so prevalent. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of kids kill themselves these days. For every chapter in the selfing part of the book, mm-hmm. you have a corresponding chapter in the no-self part of the book that kind of counterbalances it, more or less. Oh, roughly, roughly, roughly yes. What is it about shifting from the isolated self perspective to the more the deeper or no self perspective that would cure the disease of you know, low self-esteem? Well, there's nothing to prove. When you identify as no self, in other words, when you cease identifying with the story of who you are, come back to this quiet, still field of awareness what does esteem have to even do with that, right? It becomes sort of irrelevant. There's sort of a, a wholesome context to who you are. There's an emergent expression of, you know, life kind of living itself each moment. So to put some sort of yardstick on that, you know, like, well, life better express itself this way in order to qualify for this sort of gold standard. I mean, it's just, it, it just doesn't really apply. And so there's freedom in that. You can just 
be spontaneous. You don't really have to be so self-conscious and, and evaluative, which is really constraining. I imagine that self-esteem has a lot to do with what you think other people think of you. You know, because mm -hmm. if you were Tom Hanks living on a deserted island, there'd be no consideration of self-esteem. You just, although he was pretty proud of himself when he created fire, as you may recall. Yeah. Watched, watched <laughs> no, I movie. love that movie. That's great. <laughs> yes. Yes. There's the spontaneous joy in, in discovering or creating or doing something, right? So I'm, you know, I'm not putting down any of that, but the doing or the creating doesn't have to be a prerequisite for just feeling like there is value inherent in what you are. We come in, that's a given. That wholeness is there. We, we don't have to prove or strive for that. So maybe we could say you rest in a, in a sense of confidence and contentment and mm -hmm. um, imperturbability and self-sufficiency and mm -hmm. qualities like that. And so you're not sort of grasping at straws trying to culture those qualities through this or that little achievement or attainment. Right, right. I mean, there's just something very complete, not in an uh, egotistical kind of way, but just in a way of what you bring to the table is valid. You know, and then there can still be a cultivation of different interests or different sort of expressions, but it's, you know, worth is not going to be conditioned or, you know, conditioned on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that's good. Um, I guess another way of putting it is that you know, that your true nature is, is like, is oceanic. It's, it's a fullness. And um, it's kind of like if you're, a, if you're a multimillionaire, gaining $10 here, losing $10 there, doesn't make any difference. But if you have 20 bucks to your name and you're living on the street, gaining or losing $10 is a huge deal. I don't know if this gets us away from self-esteem, but it seems to be that being settled in, the, in that pure awareness or pure, pure nature, it doesn't matter much what happens on the ripples Right. Of the ocean. It's, it's exactly. Your, you are the ocean. Yes. And even just from a psychology perspective, um, you know, a lot of positive psychology has found these days that after a certain sort of basic income, you know, to take care of basic needs, that much more doesn't lead to that much more contentment or happiness. And, you know, these, uh, you know, landmark studies of people who've won the lottery, they tend to quickly go back to whatever pre-existing baseline of contentment or discontent they had had prior to winning. So there's something else here rather than the money or the accomplishment, you know, in terms of our quality of life. Those things are, you know, they're part of the picture, but they are not the, the end all be all as culturally they, they are made out to be. Yeah. Yeah. Good. And it's good that you're popularizing this notion because the culture really does need to shift. There's so much inequity in, in the culture between you know, haves and have nots mm -hmm. and so much injury inflicted on people and the environment due to sort of the, the craving, grasping nature of mass psychology and the economic systems that arise from it. Yes. Yes. So, I mean, I, I feel like this is a, an important paradigm shift at, at all levels, not just for, you know, personal growth, which I'm making the point that it's really not personal. You know, this is part of a consciousness evolving. Um, but this is important also just for, you know, sustainability issues, you know, and environmental issues. I mean, it's, it's broad application here. Yeah, you make that point in your book. And yeah. um, I think it's an important one. And, and, you know, I don't know if it's usually not considered if we hear or if we read articles about climate change or economic issues or anything like that. And maybe something is said about, you know, the mentality of the people who are, who are having these kinds of influences. But 
usually it's not the first priority. The, the first thing we would make sure is taken care of in order to make sure the problem doesn't continue. Yes. And so taking care of oneself is taking care of others. You know, I'm just, I'm just trying to expand the sense of self so that it's not, you know, my individual body, mind, you know, that's where my self's needs end. It's, um, you know, for me to take care of the environment, to take care of the other people is taking care of myself in, in the largest sense. Yeah. And, and, you know, and it's good for individual psychology as well. Mm. Yeah, that was another criticism I got when I first started meditating. People said, well, it's selfish. You know, you're just you're going into a room and closing your eyes and just sort of being self-indulgent. You know, oh. how, how about being engaged with other people? But, you know, that's like saying, well, you know, go shopping without first going to the bank and getting some money out. Uh, you, you can't really, you don't have anything really to spend. <laughs> right, right, exactly. I mean, this is, um, you know, it's a reciprocal synergistic kind of effect here. So when you know who your largest sense of self is, then you're more likely to sort of spontaneously serve that largest sense of self. You know, if we're, we're caught in the illusion that this storyline of who I am is separate, um, you know, if I still buy into that, then what's going to be the motivation for even caring about, you know, humanity beyond my immediate family, right? Yeah. So. If you want to get a job as a lifeguard, you better know how to swim. Exactly. <laughs> <clears throat> what are some other chapters in your selfhood section that might be fun to talk about? Ah, uh, let's see. Well, let's, I mean, there's so many. The self erodes. That's kind of an interesting one. Erodes, like 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 soil erodes, that kind of exactly. thing. Erosion. Okay, go ahead. Erosion. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, so you know, I kind of relate this to some of the work I do with clients when people are coming in at. Uh, times of transition in their lives when they're um, entering into retirement or let's say because of some personal injury, they're not able to have, uh, you know, the same roles or responsibilities. And, you know, and these are difficult adjustments. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot of grieving and a lot of support to be given around these changes. But the point here is that the sense of self, you know, self likes to be this sort of stable, continuous thing, and it identifies heavily with its roles. You know, so, you know, I am a self who is a, you know, a professional or a wage earner, you know, like whatever that is, the self really binds to it. And yet our capacities and our roles and our stages of life change. And so that's what I mean. There is an erosion to the form that we're given, of course, and then how in this form we're able to sort of interact with our environment. There's just a natural erosion to that. Um, and the self really protests that, you know, there's a lot of resistance. So people can get stuck in trying to sort of override these natural changes or just, you know, go into denial. And there's an extra level of suffering that is then layered on top of whatever initial grief or adjustment it needs to happen. Yeah. So I'm basically in each of these sections, I'm trying to shatter some of these, what I call selfhoods, these kind of myths that oh, you know, I, I'm a stable, enduring kind of entity or I have self-esteem is kind of the core of what I am. You know, like I'm just really trying to shake that up a little bit. Yeah, and life shakes it up. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, let's just take an example. Let's say you ask somebody who they are and they say, oh, well, I'm a lawyer. And oh, no, that's your job. I mean, who else, who, who are you? Well, I'm a father and a husband. No, those are some relationships. And the things we just mentioned could be lost. Exactly. And so then what would you be? Well, I'm, I have a body. I'm this body. 
but way, uh-huh. but that, that could be lost. That could get sick or it, it will definitely age. And so then who, well, I'm this mind. Yeah, but you could get senile. That could be lost. Uh-huh. So what are you that can't be lost? <laughs> Well, yes. And, and I actually do this exercise, you know, when I led some groups uh, back at a medical center, it was actually a class on anxieties, but we would have people break into these dyadic pairs and one person would simply ask the other, you know, who are you? The other would give a, you know, one word answer and then they would repeat it over and over and over again, probably for about, I mean, as long as they could sort of tolerate it, but about 10 minutes. Really? Like get what, that- give us an example. What kind of a one word? So I would ask you, you know, who are you? You would say, you know, oh, I'm Rick. And then I'd ask it again. And you'd say, oh, I'm a man. And, you know, I just keep asking the oh, question. Oh, so you go deeper you and deeper, kind of. Deeper and deeper. You know, and people just didn't even realize there were so many answers to give. So just at that level, it is very helpful because, you know, it, it, when people are going through depression or anxiety or whatever the, the issue was that, that brought them to the medical center, you know, that took up most of their self-definition, at least at that point in time. And so for them to see like, oh, well, actually I am, I am all these features and all these roles and all these capacities, you know, before we even got to what's underneath all that, which, you know, in a medical setting, we didn't always get to, but, uh, you know, it's just, ah, oh, it really helps people come into the expansiveness of who they are. Mm. One thing that comes to mind as you were just talking is the element of fear. Um, mm. If you identify yourself as all these temporary changing things, it seems to me that there would be a sort of an abiding fear because all those things are always in jeopardy. Yes. Yes. And I think, you know, the, the, the self is kind of a fear based myth of an entity, really, you know, like it's, you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, if we're going to personify it for a moment, which is, you know, what, what the book is working against, but to personify it, like here's this sort of mythical entity that is afraid of being seen through, you know, being seen as what it is, which is there's no there there. Right. So it's, you know, so it has to go through this whole charade of, well, I I really am enduring and here are all my beliefs and they're not going to change. And here's my physicality. And I, you know, it's not going to change even though life doesn't operate that way, but there's such a bravado to it because it has to work that hard to really create something out of nothing essentially. Yeah. And that sounds exhausting. I mean, there must be a constant expenditure of energy to try to um, cling to and buttress and reinforce things that tend to continue slipping away from us. Yes. And thus we have psychological defenses, right? I mean, this is many of our defenses are a protection of self, you know, so, so we buy into this illusion that the self is an entity and then it's a fragile one, right? So we're always having to defend ourselves against being rejected or being condescended to or what have you. And, and, and so there's these, you know, whole maneuvers that we do to protect this self. It's a lot of psychic energy that <laughs> could be used elsewhere. Yeah. One thing people often say when they have an awakening, they feel a tremendous sense of relief because there had been this subtle effort and maybe even not so subtle going on for who knows how long and finally they're able to just relax out of that mm-hmm. and somehow nature goes on autopilot or the whole one's whole makeup goes on autopilot and is guided or conducted by some larger intelligence and you can just sort of sit back and enjoy the ride rather than try to be in the driver's seat exactly well and it's funny i, I had an experience of that sort not in terms of the self-dissolving but in terms of a an actual traffic accident <laughs> 
happening right in front of me, like a huge thing with a car flipping over on top of the car I was in front of, you know, out of, out of the blue and, and, you know, casualties, the whole thing. And, and in that moment, when I realized just that, like, oh, this, this whole illusion of me just trying to keep myself alive or protecting myself or just that I'm in control, like that just got shattered. And the experience in that moment was such a relief. Like, oh, I don't have to keep pretending that I can really control this. And then, you know, pretty quickly that went away and then fear came right in like, oh my gosh, I'm really not in control now. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, but I believe, you know, there is that initial release. We don't have the reins of the horse here. So pretending to, it's just a lot of unnecessary effort. Yeah. There's all kinds of verses in the Bhagavad Gita about how you're mistaken if you think that you are the actor really, or that you are in control, that nature is doing it. It gives you all these descriptions of how the sage realizes, I do not act at all. Um, it's all being conducted by the you know, forces of nature. Right, right. And, you know, the, the self does not want to concede control. One of the other chapters, the self steals credit. So, the, you know, the idea that whatever it is that you, you do, you know, there's this little mythical self entity saying, well, I, I made you do that, Right. You know, so, you know, so here we are gifted with whatever creative or intellectual expressions. And yet this collection of thoughts in our heads are trying to take credit for life manifesting itself. It's, it's kind of absurd. Yeah. The Gita actually refers to such people as, as thieves. It says if, if you appropriate that which does not belong to you, namely the authorship of action, then you are a thief. Ah, yes. And that's, you know, that's kind of the little funny intro I have to this book. You know, there's been an identity theft at kind of a mass level here, you know, that's, you know, the seed of our thoughts has robbed our sense of identity and these culprits should be called out. <laughs> but we don't want to sound accusatory because ev everybody's born this way and it's, it's like, you know, universal human condition. So it's not anybody's fault. I think what you're just doing is pointing out that there's a better way and, you know, we ought to seek it. But we're not blaming anybody. There's no secret government that's making us function this way or anything like that. <laughs> no, no. And, and, you know, and I really try to take the humorous tone. You know, it's like, here we are in this together. And, you know, and isn't it a bit odd and paradoxical that whether it's evolutionarily or just whatever it is that has put in place this adherence to a sense of self, what is sort of a strange thing, you know, that we've been given this you know, we're this abiding ground of being, and yet we see ourselves as so small, you know, and how is it that we do that? You know, like, it's just sort of a trying to walk hand in hand through this very absurd kind of drama and look at it with some curiosity and with some way of taking it down a notch so that we're not sort of suffering as a result of it. Yeah, there's some great line about there's no joy in smallness. Mm. Um, it's your nature, it's your essential nature to be vast and unbounded. And if the whole ocean has been squeezed into a drop and you think you're just a drop and not, not the ocean that you actually are, there's a perpetual pinch. Yes, and our longing, you know, what, what, whatever this core sense of inadequacy or loneliness that pretty much I've seen in every client I've worked with and within myself, with everyone. This, I think, is sort of what the driving force of that is. We have mistaken ourselves as the drop, and that is a pretty constrained way of mistaking ourselves. 
Yeah, you address that nicely in the book, that there's this sort of universal innate longing. And I think a lot of times the longing is misinterpreted or misunderstood. And I think people say, I really need that Mercedes, or I really need that relationship, or I really need that amount of money or something, and then I'll be fulfilled. But it's the longing that they're actually hoping to fulfill with those different things is actually the longing for the self. When I say self, I mean capital S self, you know, for self-realization. And all these other things are like inadequate substitutes. Yes. And that's why they don't really have much lasting power and why, you know, it puts us on the treadmill of constantly trying to accumulate more. So, you know, when we talk a little bit in these chapters about the self-wants or the self-needs, it's because it's trying so desperately to fill fill that in. But it's, you know, it's, it's kind of the wrong approach. We're trying to fill something in that we already are. We're just not recognizing that we are that. Yeah. And it might bear repeating that the deeper realization that we're alluding to here does not deprive you of ordinary wants and, and aspirations. Those things just become more like icing on the cake, you know, but yes. at least you have the cake. <laughs> exactly. You want the cake first and foremost. <laughs> right. <laughs> because icing gets a little sickening, right? Like, you know, this is the addictions, this is the obsessions where we're really trying to pull something out of these substances or these experiences that they're, they're not equipped to really give us. Yeah, it's not going to fill in a soul thirst. Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and all else should be added unto thee. So that's the kind of the mm. priority there. Yeah. Get that and right. then, yeah, all else yeah. will be added. Right, and icing on the cake's delicious, right? But let's, let's just make sure we're not <laughs> you know, just forgetting the cake. Are there any other little um, little mm. chapters in the first part that we want to touch on? Well, let's see. The self-freezes. I kind of like that one. Um, you know, that's really just talks a little bit more about this process of identifying with thoughts. Essentially, we've got these ephemeral symbols or representations that go through our mind. And we, you know, give a great deal of meaning to them, even though there are tens of thousands of thoughts that pass through. And so we take a particular thought that's got a, like an emotional charge to it and it kind of freezes it. You know, we put it in our, our memory museum, so to speak. Right. And then we keep revisiting that thought as if it holds some kind of essential truth about who we are, or about what's possible. I mean, this is how the sense of self gets constructed, you know, and it could be images too. Can you give yeah. us a concrete example, a specific example? Like, for instance, let's say your girlfriend broke up with you or your boyfriend 20 years ago, and you keep dwelling on that or obsessing on that. You know, you're frozen in a, a thing that happened two decades ago. And what good is that doing you? That, is that a good example? Exactly. Okay. Yes. Right. And those are the kinds of thoughts that tend to stick, right? Because they, you know, they, they have personal meaning. And, uh, you know, so whatever sort of pain was experienced at that breakup gets kind of frozen into, you know, sort of semantic and also a nonverbal memory right? We kind of hold pain cellularly in the body and we keep revisiting it. It becomes sort of a way of knowing ourselves like, oh, I'm the person that was broken up with, or I'm the person who can't sustain a relationship. And, you know, and these labels and, um, you know, kind of this, this, uh, storyline about ourselves, then just, you know, that's the self that we're, we're constructing. And it's, it's so outdated. It may be that we went through these experiences and we had a certain emotion or a certain kind of conclusion about them. But, but why are we sort of like posting them like on the wall of the museum and revisiting them as if 
they represent something about our current moment experience. And our doing that certainly influences our current experience and our current behavior. So it's like we, we carry all this baggage that has accumulated over the years, and it, it, it definitely influences how the journey is going now. Yes, yeah. yes. And, it, and, you know, it really can get in the way. There's a mechanic. I mean, just eat- Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to, you know, just use another example, just, uh, you know, five minutes before this interview. I mean, <laughs> you know, my, my selfing function is alive and well. And, you know, in the midst of feeling a little nervousness about the interview, you know, it was bringing up certain past experiences of um, social blunders and making mistakes. And if I chose to go with that and, and, you know, review that particular wing of the museum, let's say, I mean, it would really bias my whole sort of nervous system towards a different kind of experience right now. So, you know, I'm just trying to invite people to just make a choice. I'm glad you mentioned nervous system because it brings up an interesting mechanics that helps to explain what we just discussed, which is that there's an action impression desire cycle that happens where we perform an action or have an experience, it creates an impression in the nervous system, which gets lodged there and may stay there for decades. And, that, that, and then that impression in the nervous system gives rise to impulses or, or, or desires, which then spur us to further action. And the whole cycle can repeat itself. And obviously, in, to take an extreme example with addiction, it can become very compelling and very hard to escape from. But it happens with smaller things, too, and, it, and there's probably countless impressions in there. So, you know, one effective, spirit, effective spiritual practice is to root out these impressions. They're called samskaras in Sanskrit. And as they get rooted out, they're said to be like burnt seeds that can no longer germinate and uh, have weeds springing up. And so there's no longer any impetus to action based upon conditioning. Instead, the impetus to action is this more cosmic intelligence that's much more appropriate to the circumstances and not based on, on some old past thing. Right, right. Oh, I love the, the burnt seeds. And, and essentially that process is what psychotherapy attempts to do because we're speaking about it as if we should know better. But, but really a lot of that kind of conditioning happens to us early in life. Sure, you know, we're, we're just especially sort of subject if it's traumatic what, or something. Oh, absolutely. And it, it really, um, you know, and during a very you know, a time of development in which, uh, you know, things have quite an impact on just, you know, basic ego functioning, you know, it can, it can really disrupt, uh, you know, a person's autonomic nervous system. And so people, you know, become hardwired to be vigilant and to believe that people are untrustworthy or that circumstances are unsafe or that there's something fundamentally wrong with themselves. And that really does need to be uprooted. Yeah. I know that during intense spiritual practice, when these impressions start to get released, you can relive a lot of the experiences that had been lodged there, but it's sort of a brief reliving that you're capable of handling at that point, and then you're done with them. And probably something similar happens in therapy sometimes, right? Well, absolutely. And, and there are some techniques such as EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing, you know, which really helps the, the mind-body discharge that kind of frozen belief system or frozen kind of fear response, not in a reliving. It's not about re-exposing oneself. That's not where the healing happens, but you do feel some of those same impressions once you discharge them. 
So, you know, it's not a fun process to go through, but it, it really does truly um, liberate a person of these very early conditionings. It's nice to have gone through, but the going through might be a little unpleasant, <laughs> but it's worth getting it over with. A couple right. of questions came in. Here's one from Bartholomew in Melbourne, Australia. He asks, so if I am not the doer, how can, quote, I have free will if there is free mm-hmm. will? That is a great question. Honestly, <laughs> there's different research studies that say different things about this. You know, there were a whole set of studies that showed that, ah, you know, decision making was done even before decisions arrived at the level of the frontal lobes, right? Before, you know, that you were aware that you were doing that executive functioning. And so it was thought, oh, there is no free will. But then other studies have shown, actually, it's a much more integrated process. I've often heard people cite that study of the impulse to move your arm, you know, happens a a second before you actually are aware of it or anything like that. But I've heard that also that that was debunked or that, as you say, it's more complicated or nuanced than that. Right, right. That was Lisbeth's study and that, you know, some of the methodology of that was called into question. But, um, you know, I I think it's an and both. I mean, just personally, um, you know, I, I think this this second level of sort of self-referencing, like that really can influence our decisions. But even before that comes online, there is an, a, an impulse, you know, an expression that comes through even before my mind makes a comment about what I am doing. So, you know, so once that self-referential capacity does come up, you know, that that can be... Um, know, part of what um, determines the behavior. So, so you've got kind of both. That's, you know. Yeah. Um, a question came in from Ranjit in Irvine, mm-hmm. California, which I think takes Bartholomew's question and, um, and a step further, which is, he says, how does spiritual realization about the lack of personal will change how you operate in the day-to-day world? Presuming, mm. of course, that there, that we have realize there is no personal will, which I think is still debatable, but uh, go ahead and see what you think about that. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's certainly first, it humbles oneself, right? Um, You know, it's, it's, you know, the self, if we're going to personify the self, the self does not like this, you know, the self wants to be in charge. And, um, you know, there might be sort of a bit of a, you know, kind of rebellious flaring up of the self to sort of prove it's that much more in charge. But essentially, you know, this is, it's, it's a relaxing, right? Like you were just saying, like when you break free of that illusion that everything is under your control, there's a relaxing. And then, and then there, there continues to be a, an arising of experience, of expression. So, you know, I don't need my self-referencing capacity to, to have to be online for me to really, you know, do anything. Um, you know, it could be part of the conversation. Um, but there's, there's sort of a trust that comes about like a trust that life is in fact living itself. You know, if we, um, I don't know, just stop listening to the the selfing voice long enough, we can just do that as our own experiment and see like, you know, is it just, you know, sort of lack of movement, lack of thought? No, there's, there is still, um, you know, a vibrancy that comes through. We're just not claiming it as our handiwork. Yeah. The the idea of intuition comes to mind as you mm-hmm. say that. Um, and I have a friend who, Susanna Marie, who actually has a blog called Life Living Itself, or maybe it's a podcast. Mm. 
I think that little three-word phrase um, says a lot. It's, it's life is living itself, and, and we're an instrument through which it's living, right? Yes. And as that instrument, you know, we have thoughts, we have motivations, we have interests and things. But don't you get the sense that a lot of these, the impulses that, that motivate us to act and do things um, come from some deeper level that we can't even exclu- claim exclusively we can't claim ownership of, you know, right. there, there's some like deeper wisdom that is not limited to our individual structure that we become a conduit for. Um, mm-hmm. That's the best I can think of saying it. Well, and I, I would agree. It's certainly my own experience in writing this book. It, it very much felt just like that. Um, you know, my, my ego, myself, well, you know, it's pretty ambivalent about writing this book, to tell you the truth. I mean, it's I'm, I'm a really private person. This is the first time I'm coming out as kind of a non-dualist in a public forum. And it's, um, you know, and from my conventional background, you know, this is this is out there stuff. And so, but this this compulsion to write this and, and some of the wisdom that came with that, um, I, it, it, it truly was not from myself. I can, I can assure you of that. <laughs> there was something kind of larger at work here. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think there's something just intriguing in that mystery. It doesn't have to be a threat to my personal sense of self. Like, you know, both things can coexist and, and just be kind of glad for each other. No, it is intriguing. And, you know, a lot of spiritual teachers have spoken about surrender and about service and, you know, the will of God, you know, just uh, being in tune with the will of God, being a servant to the divine and so on. And that's what they're talking about. It's like, you know, if you get out of the way, then the divine can, I don't want to say use you, that sounds a little strange, but, um, you know, you can be, uh, well, what did St. Francis say? Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. peace. Yes, yes. Right. And, and, you know, there's something just so graceful in that. Uh, if the self is willing to, to surrender a little and not get in the way. Yeah. And he still said, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. So there's mm-hmm. a sense of a me. There's a sense of, you know, this body mind that functions. But mm-hmm. I, want the, I want it to function in service of something profound, something divine. Yes. Right, right. I mean, you know, we all have our individual personalities and our individual capacities, and that that gets to be put in the service of, again, life-serving itself, you know, that there is something beyond what our minds can really conceptualize. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. So we could shift over to the No Self Speaks section, if you like. But all right. Do you have anything else that you really want to hit on from the, the first section? Well, maybe just to say the part about the self dies. When I write about that, I'm not talking about the body's death. I mean, that's kind of a given, although plenty of us are still in denial about that. But but I'm talking about the self-referencing, the narrative that we have. That part goes on and offline all the time. So when we're watching a movie and really absorbed in it, we're not coming back to the self-storyline and referencing ourselves. So it's dying in terms of it's just kind of fading to the backdrop. We're not identifying with it. And that's, you know, it's harmless. And it's, you know, there's nothing to have to dread or fear. I just wanted to make a point of that because it's very counter to that first impulse, which is like, oh, this sense of myself has to be continuous and it has to be kind of on the front burner. 
or else, you know, something's going to be lost. And, and it's just not true. Like it fades into the backdrop all the time. And, and we're no worse for that. In fact, we're probably better. Yeah. And just to take an example that comes to mind, some great athletes talk about being in the zone. And, you know, when they are, they're really at the top of their game, but they're kind of like almost a silent witness to what they're doing. Yes. There's just this sort of beauty and grace and automatic performance that they are not sort of willing to happen uh, through uh-huh. any kind of cerebral or any other kind of you know function. There is just it's, they're on autopilot and and they're at their at, they're doing their best. They're at their best. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Same with musicians, dance as well. Right. So, you know, so if the self needs to take credit, I mean, yes, there is the, um, you know, the athletes training and whatever choices were made about, you know, whatever course of, you know, instruction or way of applying, you know, one's body mind. But in the moment, there is a mastery. You can trust that that life will show itself in some effective or purposeful way. Yeah. And actually, just um, back to the point you were making about writing the book and how, in a very real way, you didn't do it. It was just sort of coming through you. A lot of great artists and writers and so on speak of that, too. I mean, there's the idea of a muse, you know, and a lot of great composers say that, you know, their symphonies, Mozart said sometimes a symphony would just come to him in a flash. He'd have the whole thing. And it was just a matter of writing it down. (laughs) So I think there does seem to be some higher intelligence, which... You know, we don't need to think as separate from ourselves. I think that's ultimately what we are, but that only gets impeded by individual monkeying around and interference, really. Yes. And I think that's, you know, you know, a lot of writers describe kind of this tortured experience with their writing. and, And I'm certainly no different from that. But the tortured experience is not the transmission from the muse, the tortured experience is the self <laughs> stepping in absolutely with its second guessing and it's, um, you know, just whatever garden variety neurotic dance that it wants to do. And it's, it's a real practice, as you say, like, you know, to, to try to detach from that. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I mean, it's often said that artists, great artists suffer and, and some have said, well, you have to suffer to be a great artist. But maybe what's really uh, going on is that you know, something profound is trying to come through and a lot of suffering is experienced if there's garbage in the way because that garbage is sort of being burned or pushed. And so that it's like trying to put too much voltage through a, a small wire or something. The wire can't handle it. Right. And, and you know, so it, it, the, the willfulness versus the willingness, right? Like are we, is the self trying to willfully manipulate what is coming through? That's the recipe for suffering. Or can we take a stance of some willingness, you know, some humility, surrender, and just just allowance to be, you know, the conduit without it, you know, having to take away whatever appropriate pride there is in the accomplishment, you know, that could still stand, but just allowing for, you know, this truth to express itself. It doesn't have to be tortured. (laughs) Good. (laughs) I think it's an important point, you know, because I think it's a trope, if if that's the right word, uh, um, just a, a popular assumption that there's a correlation between creativity and suffering. And I think that's something that should be put to rest. You know, it doesn't, it really doesn't have to be that way. Right. Um, right. So, or just some, the way some people had assumed, like you have to go through tremendous like suicidal suffering to have a, um, a spiritual awakening. And, and we know that that's just not true. No. Yeah. Huh. I think part, part, well, in terms of that specific example, I think a lot of times people create a lot of suffering if they're on a spiritual path, 
by being fanatical about it and by being far more effortful than they should be, as opposed yeah. to taking a more natural approach and just sort of relaxing and allowing, allowing nature to conduct the process. Right. Yeah. Because I mean, I don't think our, our self trying to, again, to will, you know, to manipulate something into awakening. It, it, I mean, that, that's probably going to be counterproductive. Yeah. A good example of that is if, as I quoted the Yoga Sutras earlier, yoga is the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind. Let's say you have a pan full of water and it has ripples in it and you want the water to become still and clear. You don't start pushing on the ripples because you know, <laughs> you're only going to create more ripples. You just sort of allow the pan to settle down. Ah, that's great. <laughs> yeah. That's great, yeah. I'm going to bring that into my clinical practice. That's lovely. Yeah, because, I mean, it's, it's just so true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So then um, this, this part two of your book is um, it's a nice collection of how one might function as no-self. And again, sometimes it's confusing because some, sometimes we refer to no-self, anatta in Buddhism, or sometimes in Hinduism it's called self with a capital S. But I think we're talking mm. about the same thing here. Yes. Higher self, deeper self, universal self, whatever. So uh, are there a few like little nuggets out of there that you'd like to elaborate on? Mm. Well, I, I think a helpful one is no self, no judgment, right? Um, you know, there's, um, I think one of the fears people have is, you know, if I don't, you know, identify with my thoughts and my opinions and my preferences, I'm going to be this bland wash of passivity, uh, you know, and I'm not going to have any kind of direction or any angle to who I am. And that's not true, right? There is, a, you know, there is a personality, there are preferences that emerge, um, you know, abiding as this clean slate of consciousness. It just means that you don't have to have some kind of, um, agenda. You don't have to, you know, judge good or bad. Um, you know, you can still have preferences. There's still sort of a certain kind of um, inclination towards action, but judgment about, um, I don't know, you know, other people or right, what's right or wrong, like those things can soften. And it just, uh, you know, again, it frees people up to be much more a willing sort of participant, a willing interface with life on its own terms rather than trying to impose one's judgment and one's kind of manipulation. Yeah. Yeah, I can think of a couple of concrete examples. I mean, we were talking earlier about how if one is attached to one's opinions and, and, and so on, and tries to make, if one tries to make absolutes of them, then those absolutes, we didn't put it quite in these terms, but then those absolutes are going to clash with everybody else's opinions because opinions mm-hmm. are not absolute, they're, they're relative. But if you make them absolute, they're going to they can conflict with everything else. But like, for instance, I have this friend named Phil Escott who's been on Bad Gap and um, he had all kinds of health problems and he feels that he's cured himself by adopting a completely carnivorous diet. He eats nothing but meat. And he recently gave a talk to a group of vegans. It was sort of a, supposed to be a kind of a debate. And people in the audience were just going bananas, you know, <laughs> yelling and screaming and not letting him get a word in edgewise, just being utterly fanatical. And he said, well, I'm never uh, going to do that kind of thing again. And he, he seemed to be reasonable enough sitting on stage and, you know, let me answer the question. And, uh, but, like, people were very attached to that particular opinion. And you see the same yes. thing in politics and religion and and um, any number of, of areas. Right. I mean, there's just, you know, the more attached you are to these thoughts and the more you elevate them to the rank of ideas, beliefs, universal truths, you know, then the more um, conflict there is. 
you know, but stepping away from that doesn't make us, you know, kind of brainless zombies. I mean, we, you know, we, we still can, uh, yeah, we still have our opinions. I'll still champion a a certain cause and maybe not another cause, but it doesn't mean I have to be in opposition. I see this all as the play of form, whole array of different kind of views. I'm not going to judge one as I don't know, sort of God's will and something is, is not that, you know, that would be so presumptuous. Yeah. Well, I'll give you another example. I have a, a good friend named Alex Takaris, who is the host of the Skeptico podcast. He thinks climate change is some kind of a hoax, a global warming. And I feel like it's the worst problem facing mankind. And, you know, we have debates about it. We've, I've been on his show talking about it and everything else. And we never see eye to eye. But I love the guy. You know, he's a good friend. I don't have to think he's evil or crazy or stupid or anything else. It just gives mm-hmm. us some kind of grist for the mill in terms of things to entertain ourselves with, to try to work, it, work out our differences. Exactly, exactly. It doesn't have to be, you know, a threat to yourself, assuming that you take, hold yourself a little lighter. Good point. I mean, if you define yeah. yourself as what you believe, then anybody who disagrees with your beliefs is a threat to you. You know, they're, exactly. not, they're not a threat to your belief. They're a threat to you because you think you are your beliefs. That's right. That's why, that's why this is so revolutionary for people to disidentify from their beliefs. I mean, it suddenly oh, it just brings some breathing room in. You know, there can be some sort of negotiation, some genuine you know, respect for others' beliefs, knowing that they are all of the same thought substance. Um, you know, it, we can still you know, feel strongly and impassioned, but it, it really doesn't have to be an annihilation of selves in the process. Yeah. Here's a perfect example of how what you're advocating in this book would be of tremendous practical significance, let's say, in politics, where there's such polarization mm. and nobody can talk to each other and nobody can accomplish anything, and, or in these debates about abortion or gun laws or you know, gun rights and all that stuff. There actually are groups. There's a group in my town, where, which is organized by a couple of friends of mine, who, who um, get all these liberal and conservative people together in one room, and then they have this whole method of enabling them to actually talk to each other and appreciate oh. each other's perspective. I forget what it's mm. called. They have a website about it and everything. I think that would be greatly facilitated by being able to sort of relax into true universality, which actually yes. by definition contains all individual expressions and your particular individual expression may still lean in a particular direction, but actually your deeper nature of what you are contains all individual expressions and concluding those which don't concur with, with your individual preferences. Right. Right. And, you know, and you can see that some of the work that's been done, um, like Fred Luskin's work around forgiveness, you know, the methodology he uses, I mean, and he brings together people, you know, different sides of the conflict from Rwanda or from, you know, Northern Ireland. I mean, people who have lost loved ones in the same room with, you know, those from the you know opposition and he takes them through a process of forgiveness that's about helping people basically detach from their own stressful thoughts, you know, not holding on to the grievance story because it's so toxic to the one who holds that story. So the forgiveness has nothing to do with, you know, did you get an appropriate apology? You know, we're amends made. You know, that I mean, you know, that can be towards reconciliation, but but you know, within one's heart, you know, forgiveness and healing comes from letting go of the self's attachment to the story of having been wronged. I mean, the, the fact was that these harms have been done. So it's not a minimizing 
or condoning of that at all, but just the self's sort of attachment to that as a way of holding the grievance story. That's the work that's done. And people can do that inner work and then come together. So you're not needing to extract something from someone else for your own healing. It's remarkable. Yeah, someone got in touch with me a couple of years ago who was doing something like that with Israelis and Palestinians and achieve, ah. achieving great results. But it brings up an interesting point, which is that all kinds of groups like that are great and that, that more of that should be done. And I know there are popular movements to, to get people to do that kind of thing, whatever the, the polarization we're talking about. But I think more fundamentally, we need to infuse into collective consciousness more of this unified value of mm. the no self, as you call it, um, or yes. universal consciousness or whatever. I think that as that gets more and more and more enlivened in collective consciousness, then quite spontaneously, many differences will kind of melt away or become harmonized. And people might begin to wonder, well, why were we making such a fuss? You know, we could have sorted this out a long mm. time ago. Right. Well, and, and, you know, given that we can't necessarily speed the pace of that, you know, writing these books, having these dialogues and these forums hopefully is doing that. It is helping. But simultaneously, let's let's just have all approaches at once. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm feeling a bit of sense of urgency around what's happening at the global level here. So I, you know, I appreciate everybody contributing as, as they can. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I don't think it has yeah. to be either or, but it needs to be all. Because if all. you try to just do, let's say, the, the meetings without the deeper spiritual exploration that needs to be much more widespread. Or if you just do the spiritual exploration, but you don't take steps to promote alternative energy or whatever the Mm -hmm. the relative thing is, then it's just not a complete solution, I think. Right, right. Because, I mean, you know, I think this fundamental sort of myth of self and buying into some separation, I, I think that's the root of most of these problems. So we can you know, keep cultivating the garden, but if we're not really pulling out some of these these weeds at the root, it's going to continue complicating things. Yeah. One metaphor I've used before that comes to mind here is that, you know, if you can somehow make the ground of a forest, let's say, more nutrient-rich, then all the plants will thrive, not necessarily in competition with one another. They'll all just thrive because they're all deriving more nutrients from their roots. So I think that kind of pertains to this whole discussion. If if the collective consciousness could be more infused with this deeper thing we're talking about, then all cultures will will be enriched, all peoples. And disharmony, I think, will naturally begin to dissipate as a result of that because a more unified value will begin to percolate into all the more expressed values. Right. Well, and, and with that metaphor, it's, the idea that when people can tap into this rich kind of ground of what they are, then it doesn't activate the the individual, you know, the evolutionarily built up survival mechanism, right? You know, that feeling of competing for resources or scarcity or, you know, just, you know, my needs versus your needs. Like if, if people really can tap into sort of the, this rich, fertile kind of foundation, then you know, it's, uh, that can ease up and then, you know, we can bring our kind of higher level faculties to the problem solving table. Yeah. I mean, it becomes a matter of your needs are, are my needs because we're, we're all one essentially. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Whatsoever you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. Yes. Um, 
Nice. Okay. We've got all the world's problems figured out. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) so what are some other little tidbits from the no self speaks uh, section that we could play with? Let's see. Well, I mean, you know, I I talk about no self, no aging. That's kind of the counterpoint to the, the self dies part, you know, the sense that this field of consciousness that we are, this awareness, it's, it's primordial. Unlike the self, it doesn't kind of come online or not. It's not like a hardwired kind of um, capacity in the brain that gets activated with certain neuronal activity. This whole premise of this book is that consciousness is, is not an emergent quality or feature of the material brain, that you know, consciousness is the, the fundamental context, source, and substance, and you know, everything sort of uh, emerges out of that. So, so that, I mean, that's, you know, that's quite a, the brain is an emergent property of the, of consciousness. That's actually the way it is. (laughs) Right. And so from that, from that understanding, you know, there is no aging or death, right? You know, from the self's view, the, the, the storyline and from the body mind, you know, you know, death is, you know, kind of part of the, uh, curriculum. It's kind of what you get. Yeah. It's been so long. I think, you know, when I first started getting into uh, spirituality, I was a teenager and teenagers don't think they're going to die anyway. So I I don't ever remember having a time in my life when I feared death (laughs) because once I got into spirituality, it began to sort of tune me into something which can't die. And I never Ah. really went through that phase. I think a lot of people do. I remember hearing about Raymond Massey who played Perry Mason in those old Perry Mason shows. Uh-huh. He, he was so feared, afraid of death that when he was actually dying, he tried to sit on the edge of his bed and not lie down for fear that he, it would, he would die sooner. So, I mean, it seems to me that if they think there's nothing after death and it's just lights out and you cease to exist, some people don't seem to have a problem with that. Sam Harris talks about that and says, oh, mm. no, no big deal. I think it might evoke a fear because it's wrong. For instance, for, for one thing, we do continue. And to, to think that we're going to cease to exist clashes with reality. Take it from here. I could throw in a few more points, but what do you have to say about that? <laughs> well, there's some interesting studies that I cite at the back of the book about death fears and that there really is, um, you know, our, our brains are designed to actually scan for signals, you know, um, any sort of subtle signals that, you know, um, show some potential threat about, uh, you know, annihilation, the, the mind will go to those much faster than any other kind of mental content. So I think, you know, just, you know, again, evolution has designed us to be on the lookout for this because we are sort of survival focused. Yes, yes. It's, it's adaptive to, you know, uh, want to put your energy towards the living rather than, you know, the understanding of the ending. But in terms of, you know, I, I think unless people have had some true experiential no-self moment, it just feels too conceptual that we're not going to die. I've interviewed a number of near-death experience uh-huh. people mm-hmm. and uh, also read some books by others whom I haven't interviewed. And almost universally, they, they say, no worries. It's, it's, I actually, I'm not... You know, I don't have a death wish, but I look forward to dying because it's so beautiful yeah. <laughs> on the other side. Yeah, and I think it's a, one of the studies I cited, I can't remember the exact number, but something like 20% of, of people have had those kinds of experiences. You know, it's, it's not really that, that small a fraction, but, you know, because it's not talked about or just, I don't know, we're, we're such a youth-based culture that, 
you know, as we approach later stages of life, it just, you know, we're just trying to, you know, it just feels so aversive, you know. I mean, a lot of my clients are, are um, 60s, 70s, 80s, and this this is very much what, you know, what the next chapter entails, like an exploration of what does this mean to you? What what are your hopes or beliefs or fears? And, you know, everybody has their own point of view. But in terms of your book here, the, uh-huh. the main point is that <laughs> there is a level of what we are that never dies. Yes. And if we can know ourselves as that, then, uh, as it says in the Gita, none can work the destruction of this immutable being. Ah. And it also says in the Gita, just a little of this Dharma eliminates great fear. Yes. Yes. And then that and certainly has been my personal experience as well. Again, if I didn't have a personal taste of that, I would feel like I'm just playing around with concepts. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, I think in this book, you know, especially if this is a a person who's not well-versed in these ideas, like I think the hardest part to try to engage with will be the parts about no self, no aging. I, I just tried my best to try to explain that, but it's, it's a little hard without being able to sort of gift a person the experiential component. Yeah, well, that's actually how we started out today is talking about the, the importance of the experiential component. Yeah. Because unless you can dip into that, all these things are just a lot of words, you know? Right, right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so I would recommend that people explore what, what sort of practice or, or approach works for them to, yes. uh, to enliven that experience because it's definitely enlivenable. It's definitely possible. Anyone can have it. No one is incapable. And um, so it's a matter of finding what, what you can work into your, you know, what you can find. Then seek and you shall find. I mean, just there's a lot of things out there and many of them are effective. And, you know, it's, yeah. hopefully we're motivating people to, uh, to take that route. Yes, I, I hope so. And um, yeah, yeah, I mean, my hope again with this book is that it's, uh, you know, for folks who, who aren't really sort of spiritually oriented like this, you know, this, this allowed them to come into contact with something that's true about themselves that, you know, it, it is sort of down to earth language around it so that it doesn't have to seem so esoteric or off-putting or, or out there. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of concepts that 30, 40, 50 years ago... <clears throat> seemed really esoteric and, and off-putting and out there. I mean, the very notion of meditation was yes. weird or, or yoga, <laughs> you know, was weird. Um, and uh, these days it's like, yeah, sure, meditation, everybody does it. It's, you know, they do it in corporations and yeah. everything else. So if we're like on the cutting edge of what's considered weird right now, wait 10 years, you know, <laughs> it'll be more normal. But it has well, to start I hope somewhere. So. Wouldn't that be great if, if that was sort of the conventional reality that everybody knew that they were fundamentally of the same and, uh, you know, that this kind of, you know, pervasive loneliness and divisiveness, it just, I don't know, it just kind of fell away. Yeah. I, that would be great. I think it will. Um, I don't know the timeline, but I think we're, we're definitely moving in that direction. Um, and I think there's going to be huge societal changes and we'll, and we'll come out the other end with... Uh, this sort of thing becoming the norm. Ah, I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. So there's Ah. a third section in your book Mm -hmm. um, entitled to self or not to self. That is the question, whether it is nobler (laughs) in the mind. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
take us into a little bit of that, what you're talking about there. All right. My intention is not to proselytize. I mean, even though, of course, it is the book is set up with having no self appear the, the you know the, the better option, <laughs> clearly. I really do want to invite the readers to contemplate for themselves what's in their best interest. If they find that, you know, attaching firmly to a storyline that their mind generates about who they are, if that works for them, I mean, they probably wouldn't even be reading this kind of book, but, you know, go for it, right? You know, nothing's going to be taken away. There is no sort of absolute right or wrong here. So it's, it's really helping people evaluate, well, how, how would I even determine whether selfing has been useful or not? So, there, you know, there are different sort of questions in terms of, um, you know, like how much peace does yourself really afford you, right? Or how much does yourself even like itself? Uh, you know, I mean, just, just basic questions in terms of day to day, like when you keep the story of yourself, like, you know, how's that working for you? You know, the Dr. Phil kind of question. Well, your book and, points out pretty well, especially in the first part of it, that it doesn't work for people very well. And it, it shows examples of, you know, which I think most people can relate to of why it doesn't work. So I think you, you make the case. Yeah. There. <laughs> All right. And then, you know, and then in, in this last section, just also trying to give examples of, so what is the, you know, smart selfing, this, this action of, you know, choosing to shift out of self-identification and into no self, or at least just even just the disidentification with self is a shift. Even if, you know, people are like, like, you know, what is this, you know, sort of this ground of being that's okay. Just, it's enough to sort of set down the story of oneself just in doing that there's benefit. And so, you know, I just go through different examples during the day. Like when you wake up in the morning, what's an example of selfing versus what's an example of coming back to no self or eating a meal and, you know, just to make it a little bit more tangible, you know, and it's essentially about people's selfing judiciously and allowing and a a buy-in to their thoughts when it actually serves them versus autopilot and reactivity and, you know, emotion-driven yeah, I think that the recommendations you offer can actually have an effect. I mean, just this whole discussion we're having and just reading your book can enable people to take a step back and not be so convinced by their ordinary level of way of functioning, you know, not be so yeah. invested in it, just to kind of recognize a vision of possibilities that there's another way of functioning, if we want to put it that way. Um, yes. But just the initial glimpse is not the full realization just as the you know you can see a little bit at 5 a.m when the when dawn starts to break you can see your way around a little bit but it's not like Mm -hmm. noon in terms of the bright sunlight right and that's why i don't use any words about you know awakening enlightenment yeah you know because somewhere down the line down the road yeah and this is you know this is primarily sort of a psychological kind of book psychology only goes so far so i'm trying to you know sort of bring in another sort of truth of who and what we are, but uh, it's primarily through yeah. the workings of our mind. Well, it's like you said in the beginning, it's not supposed to be the Brahma Sutras or something. It's not the, yeah. some kind of ultimate teaching, but it's, it's an introduction to people that there's another way of being, that you are not necessarily, you're more than you think you are. Yes. Um, or less than you think you are, however you want to put it. Well, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's kind of like alerting them to that possibility. Right, right. And then just seeing sort of the, you know, the implications of that 
on a larger scale. Yeah, like the practicalities you know, that, of it, the, the benefits oh, yes. of it. Right. I mean, just, you know, in terms of individual functioning and relationships and how you approach the job, but also in terms of how countries get along with people, mm -hmm. you know, just all the different levels. Yeah, it's relevant to everything. Yes. One little proviso I would throw in is that there have been instances in which people have taken these kinds of understandings and mm -hmm. um, it has brought about some kind of disassociation or spiritual bypassing ah. uh, and sort of a disingenuousness where they mistake understanding for actual realization and then they, they behave more unnaturally. Yeah, have you run we, into that? I have in, in the county in which I live. I, I've run into that a lot. You know, I mean, people are, you know, real spiritual seekers. And that what goes with that is that there's, there's the risk for some spiritual materialism and a certain kind of pretense of how to be, <laughs> you can feel it when you encounter it. And it's, you know, everybody just has their best attempt at trying to apply these truths, but sometimes it's not from the inside out. Sometimes it's from the ego and it, it, it's a little hard to be around. <laughs> I laughed just now because I thought of J.P. Sears. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. He wrote the forward to the book actually. Oh, did, oh that's right. Of course. Yes, he did. Yeah. It, it was a very yeah. funny forward. And and he, yeah. he's been on Bat Gap and he has this whole um, ultra spiritual thing where he kind of is a parody. But anyway, he lampoons that tendency <laughs> to try to affect spirituality and not have it be as opposed to genuine development. <laughs> yes. Oh, no, I love his. Oh, my gosh. I love his uh, ultra spirituality thing. And I, and I think I watched the uh, interview you did with him. It's just hysterical. And, you know, and it helps us laugh at ourselves, right? Because sometimes, you know, the self does like to kind of capitalize on on this. Again, if we're going to personify the self, it sees that its days are numbered, so to speak, right? So, you know, it's going to sort of join in with the spiritualizing of itself to hunker down. And, um, you know, it just complicates things. Yeah, it's an interesting point. Here we're talking about something which should ideally liberate one from the confines of smallness and of obsessiveness on individuality, but it actually can be used to reinforce it and you know just put more decorations on it so i suppose the takeaway is that this is a very important thing and don't let it just be one more thing to um yeah notch on the belt right the, the the small self dig deeper like, than that yes this is not yet the, the next accomplishment you know in the way of proving that the self has worth yeah yeah that that, that is not what this is in service of but it's their game. I mean, selves will appropriate what they will. So, yeah. And often people go through a stage like that and then they grow out of it. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and probably unknowingly, I've encountered a lot of people who unknowingly take that on, but, you know, to compensate what, for whatever insecurity or whatever workings through that they're in process with. Everybody's just trying to find whatever means to land towards some fulfillment. Yeah. Is there any other point in that section that you want to highlight to self or not um, to self? Well, you know, I, I kind of bring up the acting as if method. I think this is sort of the challenge with a lot of teachings, like, you know, how do you offer people kind of entry into something that in some sense is grace given, but the acting as if, like, what do you lose? You know, if I were to go through my life, maybe assuming that I am same consciousness as the person I'm looking at, I don't lose anything by that. Even if it, it doesn't seem like the true visceral experience I'm having it's a bridge. It's a way to help me, I don't know, be, be more open to the, that knowing. 
So I bring it up as a tool, but with some reservations, like, you know, in psychotherapy, you know, if a person is struggling with, let's say, social anxiety and assigning them the task of acting as if they're confident. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's a bit of a manipulation, clearly, but to the extent that then the actual experience, they're able to sort of get in touch with a genuine sense of presence, that's real. And then that can be built upon. So, you know, some of the means aren't, I don't know, they're not as good as I would hope they could be. I'm reminded of that song from The King and I, you know that? Um, Whenever, I won't sing it, but whenever I feel afraid, I hold my head erect and whistle a happy tune and no one will suspect <laughs> I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> right. And this is where like positive psychology gets a bad name. You know, people feel like we're just fluffing over things and, and that's not really true. But sometimes it's, if you've gone through a lot of hardship and a lot of conditioning of the self, it's a little bit hard to just smart self and shift into no self. Like, you know, there, there has to be. Yeah. It's a progressive development. You're not going to turn on a dime. There's a lot of that conditioning we talked about earlier. Yeah. It's going to take a while to work that out. But I think that app, that as if thing you just said, it has merit. If nothing else, it might make us more empathetic. You know, we kind of realize that that person is me ultimately. And, and they're, they're seeing, I mean, it's the same ultimate self seeing through different eyes. And what, you know, again, what, what you do to another, you do unto yourself. Um, if we can just culture that awareness, it might make us more compassionate or more sensitive or less likely to um, hurt others in any way. Right, right. And empathy, you know, is, is tied up with all sorts of good beneficial, uh, you know, oxytocin and hormones. And, you know, it, you know, when we access empathy, like there's such a, such a reward, you know, in how we feel. So it does become reinforcing. The point of this isn't necessarily for the individual's gain. It's just to, you know, be able to access the truth, but just, you know, for people to know there's something that's going to be good for them as they, I don't know, entertain the possibility of all this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, they say it's more blessed to give than to receive, but I think actually, don't want to make that sound mercenary, but when you give, you do actually receive more than when you don't give. And this would probably mean giving in any sense. So it does benefit the giver. Oh, yes, yes. And it's, um, you know, I always bring the research in because I'm a little bit of a data nerd. But, uh, you know, all the studies on on giving, you know, people are happier when they give money versus when they receive the same amount of money. The volunteers, the people who, who receive help from volunteers obviously benefit. But the greatest benefit comes to the volunteers themselves. I mean, it's actually prolongs a person's lifespan to be giving in that way. So, And seva is definitely a spiritual tradition, you know, selfless service. Um, mm. And it's said to be a powerful spiritual practice because it attenuates the ego. It, it diminishes the, the me focus yeah. when we're focused on benefiting others. Yes, yes. You know, and it just feels really good. I mean, just, you know, they've even done research that's, you know, looked at what's the neuronal filing firing when we're attending to other people versus attending to ourselves. And, um, you know, there, there's much more activation of just um, like our reward systems when we're other focused than when we're focused on ourselves. I mean, it's, yeah, we're designed this way. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So you just mentioned that you're kind of a, a, a science nerd. And yes. um, in the final section of your book, you have a whole thing called, uh, what do you call it? 
It's sort uh, of, uh, me search me instead search, of research. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. uh, but anyway, it's a whole lot of references uh, to different yeah. types of research that have been done, which support the conclusions that you draw in the book. So that's right. it. So for those, just to let people know what's in the book, for those who have that, that bent, you'll find all kinds of references in there. It's sort of a buttress the, the arguments you make during the book. And it was, it was kind of fun to scan through that research and see what's out there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Good. All righty. There you are mm-hmm. in, uh, in the Bay Area, Northern California. You have a clinical practice. You work with people. Do you just do that in the office or do you do it over Skype also? Uh, right now it's just in person, but, okay. uh, but soon it'll be over Skype. Yeah. All right. So people yeah. listening to this and this will be up for years, they could always just get in touch with you and see if you're doing things over Skype if, if they don't live in the Bay Area. Exactly. And, and uh, there are some um, workshops that uh, are in the process of being created now, sort of no self-help workshops. So I'm not exactly sure what venues, but um, you know, I'll be posting that on the website, the noselfhelp.com website as that um, gets figured out. Okay. So I will post links to that and to your other website on your page on batgap.com. And I'll post a link to your book. All right. Well, thank you so much. Gosh, it's such a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, thanks, Kate. I really enjoyed the whole thing. Oh, thank you. Let me just make a wrap-up point here. I've just been speaking with Kate Gustin, and uh, if you would like to find out more about her, just go to her page on batgap.com, which will be linked to, if you're just watching this on YouTube, there will be a link to it in the description underneath the video, and uh, then you can jump from there to her website's. Also, we have a Facebook page where every time I do an interview, I set up a post so that people can discuss that particular interview. So if you'd like to, it's more manageable than having a discussion on YouTube. That gets kind of out of hand. But if, you, so, but if mm. you'd like to discuss this, uh, go ahead to backgap.com to Kate's page, and then you can jump from there to the Facebook discussion group about this particular interview. So thanks for listening and watching, everybody. And thank you again, Kate. And thank you. We'll see you all next week.